First on film and entertainment, my name's Alex First. Joining me, Jackie Hamilton, a very good morning to you. How are you doing? Good morning, Alex listeners. Great, thank you, and um, thanks for having me. Gregory King, come on down. How are you doing? I'm good, thanks. How is everyone else? Excellent. And Peter Krause, the recalcitrant. <laughs> I love that uh, title, my middle name. Hi, everyone. <laughs> g'day, g'day. Now, it's Melbourne Cup weekend, if you like, or the weekend before Melbourne Cup. I've got to ask a question with regards to all the floods. And now this weekend, we've heard that TT line, which ships horses across the ditch. No, it's not the ditch. It's from Tassie across to us and elsewhere. They're no longer going to be carting horses around, which is causing all sorts of problems and so on. Uh, any of you even vaguely interested in the Melbourne Cup? Jackie, you, 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 are you an equine person? I, I was a little worried about how the rain would affect the roses. Does right. that show an interest? It, well, it does, absolutely. Well, I'm presuming the roses will be blooming, dare I say. Except for this downpour, the downpours and the constant rain we've been having might affect the blooms, the blossoms. Ah, mm. there we go. And and Greg and, and Peter, I, Peter, you, you don't even know how to spell the word sport, do you? Let's be honest. Look, I just don't like horsing around. Thank you very much. And Greg King, any vague interest? Yeah, I, I, I've been in a cup sweep for donkey's years now where we get together on Monday on the Monday before Cup Sweep, everyone gets a horse, there's 24 of us in there, we put in our money, which pays for all the food and drink on the night, and everyone gets a horse. So I have a flutter, and I've won it a couple of times. So, yes, I have an interest in the horses, and um, not not a great interest. I don't bet a lot, but, yeah, I don't mind. Our, our good friend Dave, and we, we wish him a speedy recovery because he's not feeling all the very best. He's somebody who enjoys a flutter and does kind of nicely at it, and he's got a really good equine knowledge. So there we go. So, Dave, we miss you. We'll hopefully have you back next week. I wanted to start with a movie that's just feel good. It's a really nice way to sort of get into first on film and entertainment. Mrs. Harris goes to Paris. One of the things that I kind of uh, – I've said this before. When we see the trailers for movies, uh, they often give too much away and you sort of I, – I think I've seen this trailer probably six times – What's your view of trailers, Greg? Are you in favour of seeing them? Not? Does it worry you at all if you've seen something, then you see the movie? Or how would you prefer it? Uh, look, sometimes I don't mind seeing trailers, so it gives you a bit of an idea. But sometimes some give away too much of the plot or the story. Sometimes they include scenes that aren't even in the films that have been cut from the final cut there. Um, a really good trailer just teases you that says you want to go see it without revealing too much of the film. And unfortunately, yeah, look, we, as reviewers, we get to see a lot of film previews without trailers attached to them. But when we catch up in films in, in the cinema in our own time, we get, you know, bombarded with three or four trailers sometimes. And they do give too much away sometimes. The art of making good trailers has long been lost when, you know, you had a voiceover saying, in a world long ago, and it just teases you. Um, that art's long gone now. And they made for a formula, which, um, yeah, it doesn't do much for me, but you can't avoid them sometimes. Peter, what about you? You also see a lot of movies at the cinema along with the masses, so surely that must trouble you at times too. Yeah, I prefer not to see trailers, or a clever trailer would be preferred that's a teaser but doesn't reveal too much of the storyline or the plot. So, yeah, trailers have become longer and reveal far too much, which is very disappointing. 
And Jackie, this this is not going to surprise you one iota. Often when I see a trailer, I do a childish thing. I you cover your eyes and yes. lock your ears and Correct. you refuse to be or you walk from the room. No, I know I that. Walk, I don't walk from the room. I do what you just said prior to that. And I just I'm fine and I, I actually hum to myself. I go, mmm. And I mean, it's just, well, it just it, because it's wonderful it, for the people around you, Alex. I mean, incredible. you know, we're on a roll here. I mean, I, I completely agree with the others. I actually don't mind seeing a trailer and checking that I might be interested or not interested um, because a title doesn't always give away what kind of genre, for example, it might be as to whether it might interest uh, the, the audience. But definitely, it is my pet hate where the entire film and sometimes even the ending and big plot points are given away in the trailer. My pet hate. Mm, well, apart from people know? eating popcorn noisily behind me. Oh, yes. In fact, I, I, I was I was at a theatrical production a couple of nights ago, and behind me, I reckon it was the noisiest chip packet that I've ever heard scrunched, and it just went on and on. I mean, I felt like turning around and you know giving the guy a gobful. Dare I say? What do you do in a circumstance like that, Jackie? You, you can't. I mean, you're entitled to bring in popcorn or chips or whatever it might be. I mean, I draw the line at a steaming pizza, but, you know, there's there's very – in fact, I heard somebody talking about it. I think they were from – what's the uh, cinema across the Westgate Bridge? What's that lovely cinema? Sun, Sun Theatre. Yeah, and th- they basically said, yeah, we draw the line at that as well. But obviously – Actually, most cinemas, most cinemas do ban hot food. Mm. Because that, that and that's fair enough. Who wants to sit there yes, smelling someone's, as you say, pizza or whatever? Chip but packet. I think similars. I think cinemas in their candy bars, so-called candy bars, uh, should only sell products that are not going to have a rustling sound. If you know yeah, what I mean. So I the packaging should I, be suitable. But then people also should learn to eat with their mouths closed. Well, okay, but I mean, obviously they make money. They make a lot of money out of popcorn. So they'd jack up if that was ever brought into effect, Peter, wouldn't it? Oh, popcorn's fine, but it's the people who can't close their mouths when they're chewing. <laughs> How did we get on to this? There is something far more annoying than any of that. Yes, and, and for, for me, people yeah. their, mobile, their mobile phones yes. on yes. and they text and the, the bright lights just put you off. And if you dare call them out, some of them are offended that you dare say something. Peter? Yep. That, that's exactly right. That and people who chat away uh, during the film. And uh, and you have to say something because it's just ludicrous that people use the cinema as their own social event rather than paying attention to the film. Yeah. In fact, two nights ago when I was talking about the chip packet, there was also conversation going on. I think this was a person associated with the production who'd seen it overseas or may have come over from America and was very, very excited. <laughs> but so were the rest of us. We were wanting to watch the thing without commentary. <laughs> you know, it's, um, I, Jackie, what do you do in that circumstance? Because I know you, you've been annoyed about that too. Oh, well, I, I think you draw a line at what's um, what a cinema considers acceptable or not. And as I say, hot food isn't, but popcorn is. Don't say anything about popcorn. If, um, if uh, texting is not... Texting is not, well, they're allowed to, 
But texting is frowned upon. I mean, it's not like it's illegal, for heaven's sakes, but it is frowned upon as not being appropriate in that circumstance. And in fact, cinemas such as Lido do have a uh, a, a sort of a, a, a little screening at the start of every film where they actually basically say, no more use of phone and cut the chatter. And now the film starts. Enjoy the film, they say. And maybe people don't look at that, but it is an indication by the cinema that we're, we're here to take the film, not not the social event. And I, really I, I would definitely um, either move, I, and I have many, many occasions, if I move, if appropriate, and there's plenty of space and I can go somewhere, somewhere away from them, or I will turn around and glare. And if that doesn't have any effect, I will actually say something, yes. But I'll say it nicely, you know, I'll say it nicely. Mm, mm. Well, Greg, uh, I go to the classic a lot and they've got a beautiful trailer which sort of harks back to black and white days and says shh and whatever before the movie starts. And I I think that should be in every cinema, to be honest. we, We need to have cinema etiquette and it's becoming more and more obvious that people, especially, dare I suggest, younger people seem to be ignoring that and use it as their own fiefdom. I, I don't like that at all. And I'm not trying to have a go at just younger people, but I, I particularly notice younger people. What about you? Well, it's probably um, the way they watch movies nowadays as a bit of a social event at home on their screen. So they're probably not as aware of the etiquette of being in a cinema with a lot of other people that who are there to watch the movies. So a lot of them, as the way the way they've been watching movies for quite a few few years now, and it's part of their nature um, that they do talk amongst themselves, whisper or whatever. Um, yeah, education. Um, uh, you can turn around and tell them to shh, uh, but that sometimes backfires and that. Um, but yeah, you tell you remind people about the phones. Nothing worse than seeing sitting about 50, 15 rows back from the front, and someone in the front lights up their phone as the film starts, and you can see it. You know. It's bright enough to land a space station with. Um, what do you do in that case? How can you stop that? Throw something at them. Well, exactly. It's maybe one of those powder puff type. What do you call it? But what's that sweet? I've gone blank. That I don't throw, I don't you, throw, you, throw your pizza at them. Uh, uh, I mean, instead of Jaffa's down the aisle, it should be marshmallows at, at twenty paces, something of that nature. Do you? Did you all see many trailers for Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris? I'm just curious because I, yeah. as I say, I don't think I'd seen this year. I don't think I'd seen more of one trailer than Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris. What about the rest of you? Anybody? Yes, a lot of trailers. And so I, I thought many of the good bits of that were were spoilt uh, when I saw the trailer, and I, I knew exactly what to expect. Uh, did you also, Jackie? Did you feel the same way? Yes. Yes, but it's not the film that you go in expecting to have massive surprises and shocks. I mean, it's a reasonably predictable uh, narrative, so it doesn't, uh, even though, yes, it gave it away, it it doesn't mean that it's completely spoiled. I think that people that go along to see Mrs Harris Goes to Paris uh, are not going to sit there expecting to be gripping the side of their chair and be surprised. Mm, well, it's PG rated. It's 116 minutes. and It's a really feel-good charmer, and, and it's about this modest cleaner who dreams of being able to purchase this costly haute couture Christian Dior gown. And we're talking about the year 1957. So Ada Harris, that's played by Leslie Manville, kindly beloved by all who know her. And that includes a best friend and neighbour, Violet Butterfield, a role filled by Ellen Thomas, and also a friend of both of theirs, a bookmaker called Archie. 
Jason Isaacs. Mrs. Harris hasn't seen her husband, Eddie, since he went off to fight in the Second World War. She keeps hoping against hope that one day he'll just turn up on their doorstep. In the meantime, she goes about her daily business of cleaning people's homes, a number of whom take advantage of her good nature. One day after she spots a spectacular dress at one of her clients' residences, an overwhelming desire to own one of her own overtakes her. And so it is, she saves up the pennies for a trip to Paris, specifically to the house of Dior. And we should say she has not been on a plane before. To say that she's not the usual clientele of the fashion label is an understatement. But from the moment she arrives, she shakes things up. She makes an indelible impression with all whom she comes into contact. Despite initially being dismissed by the director of the fashion house, Claudine Colbert, played by Isabel Huppert, or Huppert. Mrs. Harris turns the head of an affluent and well-presented widow, the Marquis de Chosny, played by Lambert Wilson. Her rolled-up banknotes impressed Dior's financial controller, Andre Favel, Lucas Bravo, who's all too aware that Dior is in financial difficulty. Her disposition also strikes a chord with attractive young model Natasha, played by Alba Batista. In upending the status quo, Mrs. Harris goes through a succession of highs and lows and dishes out some valuable life lessons. And it's based on a novel of the same name by Paul Gallico, director and co-screenwriter Anthony Fabian, alongside fellow scribes Carol Cartwright, Keith Thompson and Olivia Hattreed, I reckon hit many of the right notes. The script, well, it's got sugar and spice and many things nice, which makes Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris delightful, lightweight fare. It's sort of dramatic, comedic, touch romantic. It's a fairy tale. Who doesn't like fairy tales, Peter? I suppose you're right in that respect. Uh, It's interesting that Paul Gallico's novel uh, was one of four that he wrote about Mrs. Harris. And uh, this is a remake of the 1992 film, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, uh, which starred Angela Lansbury and uh, Omar Sharif and Diana Rigg, who uh, has the role that Isabelle Huppert plays in this new version of the film. There's been some rewriting and some changes that have been made to the uh, original story, uh, although the basic uh, elements of the story have remained the same. Uh, It's interesting that the film is set in 1957, because that's the same year as uh, the film Funny Face was released, and that featured a huge number of gowns uh, from Dior and others, and that's a film that starred uh, Fred Astaire and um, uh, Audrey Hepburn. I mean, this, this film is a massive product placement for Christian Dior. (laughs) Gee, I tell you what, uh, I I, I agree. I love the fact, though, that we go into real detail in the various departments within the House of Dior, Peter. I mean, you really get into every, where the buttons are put on and the the finery and the foo-foo and call it what you will. But I actually like that. I I, I mean, I, I don't know, there is something about the word Dior and all associated with it that's captivating, is there not? 
Oh, look, I agree. And but although we saw more detail of how dresses are made, etc., in the film Haute Couture, which was, was only released just recently. Look, uh, Mrs. Harris Goes to Paris, Leslie Manville is excellent in the, the lead role, and she does that uh, sort of uh, recessive um, working class woman role really well, uh, and uh, obviously with a lot of nous um, about her. Uh, look, it's nicely done. Isabel Huppert, it was good to see her in a role where she doesn't have to be grim and nasty and vicious and uh, and so on, uh, but something a bit more staid. Um, well, she puts arrogance and entitlement on the table. She certainly does that. To some extent she does, but but it's, it's a much more uh, superficial role. Nevertheless, it's enjoyable, nicely done, well shot, um, nice use of music. So overall, yes, I quite liked it. Yeah, and look, I've got to say that Lambert Wilson is debonair as the marquee. I thought that was a really pleasant role as well. And I love the roguish charm that characterises Jason Isaac's performance, Jackie. I, I thought he was terrific in that role as well. So did you enjoy Mrs Harris Goes to Paris? I enjoyed it very much, Alex. Um, but not so much the secondary characters. I didn't think that they so – I think, I think Mrs Harris herself – in the title role, really did stand out. She was the one that you'll remember ab about this film. She's a, a, a great character and she's got the both the cheeky, that kind of really cheeky charm that we really liked, um, but also a lot of gumption in her. You know, she's willing to stand up and say things and her language was exquisite. The, the you know, the, uh, um, you know, you'll be a right Charlie and all of this was really, really quite beautiful. It was nicely written in in that sense and I think there's really a good place in cinema for such an uplifting film it doesn't need not every film needs to be deep and meaningful it can just be a feel-good film you know it's got the yearnings and the aspirations in there and just I saw it as a romantic fantasy rather than a fairy tale it really is a, a fantasy of her arrival in Paris and how she goes about um uh you know getting what what her dream is the the uh, the fashion parade at Dior really was the highlight though wasn't it seeing oh. those girls swirl in those dresses and she's sitting there in the in the front row i thought that was exquisite <laughs> of course you did uh, look leslie manville it really is just so warm and feisty at the same time Loved that. Uh, and, uh, I mean, one of the, the model that we spoke about, she, she was a lovely young lady, Alba B B Batista, and she she modelled the gowns beautifully. But uh, I, I loved, I must admit, I did like the parade as well, Jackie. I, I've got to say I've been, I was invited not so long ago, before COVID, to a a Maya fashion event. Have you have you attended many of these things? You know, the, the, the ritzy things that uh, go on in Melbourne and and elsewhere around the world, New York, Paris, et cetera. Have you attended those? Oh, in Melbourne, I've been to a, a couple going way back, but not in recent times. But yeah, mm. it was it's it's an interesting experience for us who are very fortunate to be invited to many movie previews and theatre previews, et cetera, et cetera. There's it, it's got a characteristic all its own uh, in terms of where you sit and and, and uh, the the one that I attended certainly had the the champagne and. The, the preparation and all of that sort of stuff. And you do feel like a bit of King Muck going along to one of these things. And I, yeah, I, I kind of related from, to, to, from that perspective, but I loved the fact that it was like duck out of water. And, and that's what obviously makes a film like Mrs. Harris goes to Paris, Greg. 
Yes, it is a charming little film, as you've all said there. And Leslie Manville is a standout there as um, the optimistic dreamer cleaning woman there who's described as the soul of discretion by some of her clients who still manage to take advantage of her sometimes. Um, and when she goes to Paris, she shakes things up, as you said there, um, and, and changes the way model, um, Dior does their business model there. I like the fact that when she arrives in Paris, it's not the picturesque postcard Paris that we're all used to. The streets are all washed in garbage due to a workers' strike there, and you can almost smell the rubbish coming off the streets there as they walk around there. I did like um, Lambert William as the, Wilson as the amiable marquee there who has a bit of a smile on his face, charming manner there. Isabel Huppert as the overly fishes and arrogant receptionist at Dior there. Lucas Bravo as the um, young man there. That really nicely drawn characters there. Um, but the costumes are one of the highlights of the films there. Superb costumes, as you've all mentioned, the um, fashion parade there. And I like the fact you get the going to some of the detail of the care and the detail that goes into making their fabulous haute couture gowns there. This is a bit of a change of pace for Paul Gallico, who wrote the novel, but he's best known for writing The Poseidon Adventure. Ah, yes, very well picked up. Excellent. Greg, the cinematography was lovely too. Felix Wiedemann is responsible, and I thought the score by Raoul Jones enhanced the offering as well. So it's, it's a very well-put-together package, isn't it? I think it's going to win a lot of – it's going to attract plaudits from an audience looking for easygoing entertainment because this is good old-fashioned entertainment, isn't it, Greg? That is indeed, yeah, very charming little film. Yeah, terrific. So, look, let's start off with your good self, if you don't mind, with a score. As I said to you, PG-rated. It's 116 minutes. It's called Mrs Harris Goes to Paris. What are you giving it, Greg? I like the rhyme of the title, but, uh, look, I really like this. I'm going to give it seven and a half to eight. Mm-hmm. Terrific. What about you, Jackie? Uh, not quite so high. I did really enjoy it, but you know, it's uh, it's a uh, it's just a gentle fan- um, romantic co- fantasy, as I said. I'm giving it a six and a half to a seven. Mm-hmm. And Peter Kraus. Yes, I quite enjoyed it too, uh, although it's uh, uh, 25 minutes longer than the original version of the story in <laughs> 1992. Uh, but yeah, I still gave it a seven out of ten. Mm, and I, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a tonic and it's going to find favour with a lot of people. I'm giving it an 8 out of 10. I think it hit the right notes and that's the reason I'm giving it the score that I did. Now, Jackie, I know you've got a toodle off, so you're welcome to stay if you want, but if not, we will excuse you and hopefully have you back again next week. So, Oh, well, thank you so much, Alex. It was um, lovely to be a guest again. Terrific. Well, we will catch up with Jackie and hopefully Dave next Sunday on First on Film and Entertainment. In the meantime, let's talk about The Woman King, which also opened on Thursday. It's inspired by events that took place in one of the most powerful states of Africa in the 19th century. It's M-rated. It runs for two hours and 15 minutes. And it's a story about an all-female tribe of warriors. And they are known as the Agoji. And their job was to protect the African kingdom of Dahomey, D-A-H-O-M-E-Y. They're led by a king called King Gizo, played by John Biega. The narrative focuses primarily on a couple of figures. There's a Cherubic 19-year-old recruit called Nawi, played by Thuso Mabidu, and ferocious, unyielding General. Naniska, Viola Davis. So the general's weary, but resolute. Her backstory, 
horrific. It's it, it's been an ordeal, mind you. Her teenage prodigy has hardly had it easy either. She too is determined and feisty. Trouble is that her perceived arrogance and lip could be her undoing. We learn of Agoji's dedication to the king and <laughs> how others, including whites, try to take advantage of King Gizo. The stock in trade is black slaves, which General Aniska and her troops fight vehemently against. The general's stiffest adversary, with whom she has history, is a black slave trader called Oba 80, played by Jimmy Odakoya. The Agoji, well, they're effectively freedom fighters, committed to the cause, without a romantic life and without children. In spite of that, Nawi's head is turned by a visiting Brazilian. Stories by Maria Bello and Dana Stevens, direction from Gina Prince by the wood who was responsible for the old guard. Action aplenty in The Woman King, with the fight scenes heavily choreographed. The film's about standing up to exploitation and cruelty. And I thought Viola Davis was a serious force as the fiery leader who carries a heavy burden. Her role entails showing her strength and gradually peeling back the layers that have made her character who she is. And the other key character here, the 19-year-old recruit Nawi, is played by Thuso Mbedu, as I mentioned. She impresses as the teenager trying to make her mark. Like Davis, hers is a <laughs> characterization involving light and shade, which I think she handles adroitly. What did you think of it, Greg King? Oh, look, this is quite a bloodthirsty little trip down to um, 19th century Africa um, at the peak of the sort of colonial exploitation, slavery and all that kind of thing. Um, stuff there. I thought Viola Davis has a very strong presence here as the formidable warrior Menaniska, who's responsible for training a new generation of recruits and sort of readying them for battle there. The action scenes were well staged, as you said, greatly choreographed, and apparently most of it was done with practical effects rather than CGI, um, you know, like a lot of the um, superhero movies, and it shows, I think, in the action there. Um, I thought it was beautifully shot by Polly Morgan there that captures some of the great backgrounds of Africa there. The story was quite good. I thought it was a little bit long, though. Um, didn't need to be two and a quarter hours long, I don't think. Yeah, but, yeah, it was quite an exciting film there. And director Gina Prince-Blywood um, showed her um, action shops in the old guard there with Charlize Theron there. Um, so, yeah, it all works there. Um, quite a brutal little film there. I liked um, Hero Fien Siffin as the... Um, slave trader and his sympathetic offsider there who is sort of appalled by the slave trade and falls in love with um, the young Nari there and um, how they change things a little bit as well in the slave trade there. And I was worried why they called it a woman king rather than sort of the queen or something, but apparently back then the Agoji or the Gojis there um, believed in the dichotomy of the, the rulers there that they had a woman and a man king that had equal power. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I mean, so it's it's, it's got a historic base to it, as I've yeah. said at the outset, so that, that was the reason. What about you, Peter? Did you enjoy I actually did very much, and it was nice to see a, a, a very strongly female action-based film. Mm. Uh, and also, sorry? 
I agree, yes. Yeah, and also to see it based on uh, a real story of uh, of a kingdom, Dahomey, that uh, did have uh, all-female warriors. Although I have to say, reading up a bit more about this, is that they do cover up uh, a lot of the negative aspects that uh, this uh, kingdom were practising in as well. But anyway, leaving that to one side, um, I, it was good to see that all the stunt work was actually done pretty much by all the lead uh, actors or actresses, uh, especially Viola Davis, who uh, I read, who she's in her mid-50s. She was worried that her health might not uh, survive. <laughs> she does a really good job. I mean, she really she does. does. Uh, and, and uh, she's got this ferocity of spirit too, you know. Wow, you, you don't want to meet her in a dark alley, do you? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's got, and, but, but I mean, that's that's a fine acting performance when you can actually say that. Because I mean, I, I don't think we've seen a play a role quite like this before, and and that's beautiful. I mean, when a, an actor can inhabit a, a character so that you believe she is who she plays, that's that's even better. So yeah, why not? Oh, absolutely, and she she does look the part as well. She's very powerful, and mm. uh, and and at first I thought, is this going to be just another action, action, action based film? But I was really intrigued to see the the way the plot developed later on, the slave tradery, uh, slave trading issue that is uh, brought up in the film, the romantic aspects, which also have uh, colonial and cultural implications, the impact the Portuguese. Have had uh, on Africa and on the slave trade. So there are a number of elements to the film that uh, uh, justified, I, th I thought, the running time. So I was I was quite oh, impressed. Did, did you not think it was too long? Because I, I honestly did. I thought I, no. it could have been, oh, really, two hours, 15 minutes. It did not need to be that long. Greg, did you think it was a little oh, I bit? Said that. I said that. I thought it was a yeah, bit too long. long. It didn't really need to be two and a quarter hours long. And yeah. can I add the music by Terence Blanchard, who is mm. such a, a great musician, uh, adds a lot of weight to the film as well. Well, I mean, you think about this, the 19-year-old or the, the, the actress playing the 19-year-old, I think she's considerably older, but she straddles, she, the surname being Mabedu, she straddles the, the indignant, the impetuous, the spirited, the emotional, the resolute. I, I love that about her. And, and she, she just... She's a, a slightly built young woman, and uh, yet, boy, oh, boy, has she got a spirit that matches Viola Davis's. She really does. And I just, I also liked the other support characters around the general Anawi, uh, the, the sort of loyal supporters, though, played by Sheila Atim and Lashana Lynch, uh, the latter of whom brings warmth to her portrayal. And I really thought that the character played by Jimmy Odikoya was quite menacing as, as and a major thorn, obviously, in the Agoji side. That's the black slave trader. I thought he was very, very strong. The, the cinematography is quite evocative, isn't it? Uh, the, the, the person behind it, Polly Morgan, who did Where the Crawdads Sing, and you mentioned the score. Uh, Terence Blanchard was responsible for Black Klansman as well. So that that's a, certainly served to heighten the tension. Uh, I agree with you, Greg, though, a Titan script would not have gone astray. But um, dare I say it, the woman king packs more than a little punch, uh, Peter. It certainly does. Uh, I really liked it. Uh, I, I thought it had a lot to say and I gave it uh, eight out of ten. Eight out of ten. Okay. And Greg? Uh, six and a half to seven. Yeah, and I've got a seven out of ten for the woman king as well. Now, this week, uh, lots of film festivals all the time, but you've got two biggies that are 
con- competing with one another and uh, getting bums on seats. And I'm delighted to say that. Uh, and we're talking about the Jewish International Film Festival, which kicked off this week. And I'm also also kicking off this week was the British Film Festival. Now, the thing about both of these, and especially the British, is many of the films that are in the festival also go on and have major cinematic release uh, after the festival. And I presume that's because they're English language. So it makes it easier for people who, we we talked about this last week, people who don't like reading, uh, they don't have to read because it's in the English language, obviously. Uh, Notwithstanding that, there's some really good movies there, as there are with the Jewish International Film Festival. And again, uh, credit to Eddie, who is the, the man responsible for the festival, and he owns the the cinemas that are the Lido, the classic, and what's the one in, in Belgrave called? Cameo. Cameo. But I think the, the film festival is only at Lido and um, and uh, the classic, if I'm not mistaken. Am That's I, correct. Yes, those two. But, um, you know, Eddie, Eddie's sort of programming is always excellent, and many of his films also make it, uh, onto the screen afterwards, but both festivals last quite a distance. They're they're not just sort of gone in a couple of weeks, which I'm really pleased about. So I, I mentioned a couple of weeks ago that I had the good fortune to see Armageddon Time, which was the opening night film, uh, and it 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 I should say that it opens in cinemas next Thursday. So I thought we'd have a second go at it. Peter, you you went to opening night, did you not? Yes, I did. Uh, a very impressive film, uh, uh, partly autobiographical for James Gray, uh, even though he's not Jewish, but certainly growing up in uh, in New York in, in that sort of uh, time period. It's set in 1980, around the time of Reagan's uh, ascension to power, etc. So, uh, look, a very impressive film about a Jewish family and especially about this young kid who is trying to um, live a life where he wants to have a bit of fun. He has a, a, an African-American friend and also experiences a whole range of issues. Um, and Anthony Hopkins is there to guide him into being a mensch, a lovely Yiddish word for being. Lovely, isn't it? Yeah, very much. Uh, so. I, I, yeah. I, let, let's go into a little bit more detail. Uh, for those people who might have missed it, we're talking about 1980 and we're, we're in Queens, which is in New York City. And you've got a couple of sixth graders uh, they they form an unlikely friendship that causes all sorts of friction. So you've got Paul Graff, played by Banks Repetta, uh, from a good Jewish family who escaped oppression in Europe. And then you've got an African-American called Johnny Davis, played by Jalen Webb. He's from a broken home. He's living with his grandmother, who's increasingly ailing, suffering from dementia. Paul, the Jewish kid, is a gifted budding artist. Johnny who's repeating grade six, dreams of a future with NASA. Both fall out with their grade teacher, Mr. Turtletaub, Turkultaub, I should say, played by Andrew Polk, and they bond with one another while being prevented from participating in gym with the rest of the class. Paul is particularly close to his grandfather, Aaron Rabinovitz, played by Anthony Hopkins, who's a highly principled man who thinks the world of Paul and enjoys spending time with him. One day, Grandad opens up to Paul about the trauma experienced by his mother that saw her leave the Ukraine and make a new home and a new life in America. And you look at this family and you you quickly realise that Rabinovitz is the glue that binds the family together. Paul 
has a much pricklier relationship with his dutiful but overextended mother, Esther, played by Anne Hathaway, and plumber father, Irving, Jeremy Strong. They have aspirations for Paul that don't match his own desires. And as the boys' friendship develops, they find themselves increasingly at odds with authority figures. And meanwhile, Rabinovitz encourages Paul to be exactly that word that you've used, a mensch, which really means integrity and honour, right? So uh, it's been written and directed by James Gray, who did Ad Astra, and uh, a deeply personal coming-of-age story, as you've already referenced, Peter, a layered work of fine craftsmanship. And he has revisited his own upbringing, uh, James Gray. He's created characters that inhabited his formative years. So, you know, he's drawn upon his history. It's characterised by some really, I thought, really strong performances. Did, did you like the two characters and the way they were played? Very much so. I, I, I think the performances are superb, and uh, and it, it's so interesting to see the uh, the subtle politics uh, that is woven into the storyline, and uh, the notion that America was at a a crossroads, I suppose, with Reagan being in charge, and with the racial divide still being fairly strongly felt um, at that time as well, and and just the whole notion of fitting in, uh, as well as uh, having friends who uh, may or may not fit the paradigm that would be expected, uh, perhaps, of, a, of, say, a Jewish family to, to, to that extent. Mm. Oh, I mean, I, I just felt so much for that African-American kid. Boy, oh, boy. I mean, what, what hope does he have, given what's happened to him already at a very, very young age? Um, both actually inhabit their characters, both, both uh, Repetta and Webb, with, with distinction. There's a vulnerability about them which I found authentic and quite captivating because Paul's trying to make sense of a world where he knows he's different from other kids and Johnny's alienated and hamstrung by racism and poverty. I, I, I thought also we've got to reflect on Anne Hathaway. What a knockout performance as a mother who's both caring and impatient, Peter. Uh, absolutely right. And it's interesting her playing Jewish as well as Anthony Hopkins, etc. cetera. Uh, but it, it, it was fine. Uh, I thought it was a very nice depiction, especially of a family that is semi-observant. Um, so there is that notion of the, the changes that are going on within the family as well about their uh, attitude to their own Jewish identity, etc. So, yes, a very, very good film indeed. Yeah, I mean, Hopkins slots comfortably into the role of a grandfather, dishes out worldly wisdom. There's much about Armageddon time that's emotionally wrought. It's a sensitive film about love and loss. It's about class, about struggle and expectation. Many scenes stayed with me long after I exited the cinema. That's that's the sure sign of films working away at you. It's a movie that deserves to be seen and appreciated for its insight into the American dream. I mentioned uh, I had the very good fortune. I spent a few minutes with the the two stars, the the two young stars of the piece, and I I found them to be very engaging. I didn't know. I, I'll just throw this at you without giving you the answer first up. Do you know how old those kids are, or, or what? Did, what? How old do you think they are, Peter? No, I don't. I would have thought that uh, the the younger kid would be about eleven or twelve. Mm, you're talking about the Jewish, the one who plays the Jew, Jewish kid. Yes. Yeah, he's actually 14. Thanks, Rebecca. Uh, yeah. Uh -huh. and, and the other, what would you have thought? Oh, um, maybe 15, 16. Yeah, Jalen Webb is 16. And, and I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It really is. And, I, I mean, basically they, they said that 
the director, Gray, was keen to see what they could bring to the table in their respective roles. They, they bonded in a very short period of time. That They only had a couple of weeks to get to know each other before filming began. And I reckon that's immediately evident by what we see on screen. Uh, Banks Repetta grew up in the film industry. His father is a motion picture camera operator and his mother is an actor. Well, Jalen was, was a born entertainer. He acted in plays during his middle school years and then he decided to transition to film uh, during the COVID-19 quarantine period. So I, I asked Banks Repetta who, how did he get into that sort of, how, how did he get that closeness to the Jewish family and he said the dinner scenes were the ones that got him closest to what was it was like being in a Jewish family and uh, I mean I, I thought that was really interesting they he said you know apart from you've got the the sort of casting of Anthony Hopkins and Anne Hathaway uh, and you, Jeremy Strong he, the quote that I'll bring to you to describe that from Banks Repetta was, we were so comfortable with each other, we were able to be so tight and have real conversations even when we weren't filming. And that was really nice because a lot of the dinner conversations in the film were improv. There you go. So that, they weren't scripted, it just happened and, and they left it in the movie. And, and Jalen says while he's fortunate not to be able to relate firsthand to what Johnny experiences, he has family members who do most unfortunate. He says he talked to them before he appeared in the movie and they just told him about his, their experiences. They told him about how it affected them and, and he tried to channel that throughout those troubling scenes that we see in the movie. I, I, I get, I mean, I'm hoping that this is going to go to a broad audience. I really, I really sincerely hope, obviously, you know, you've got the Jewish International Film Festival and a, a lot of Jewish people are going to go along and, and so they should. Absolutely, I would commend GIF to you uh, because, and it's playing right around Australia. So even if you're travelling in the state or whatever, please catch it and go to gif.com.au. You'll get all the details there. If if you're a non-Jewish person and you don't go to GIF, you'll still be able to see it in a week's time. I hope it does well at the box office. It'll be interesting to see, Peter, uh, because it's a very intelligent movie too. It is, definitely, and it deserves a broader audience. It's only screening once uh, at the Jewish Film Festival. Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. we're... We're speaking about it after opening, so yeah. people are going to now have to catch it. If they didn't catch opening night, they'll have to catch it at the cinemas from Thursday. But yep. I hope we've we've said enough to encourage you to go along and see Armageddon Time. What are you going to give it out of 10, Peter? Uh, I was quite impressed by the film. Uh, I gave it 8 out of 10. I gave it an 8 out of 10 as well. So there you go. And, Greg, um, perhaps you can, once you've seen it next week, uh, you, you might be able to add your your two penneth worth um, to the reviews about it next week, yeah? I might be able to do that for you, Alex. Yeah, I think it would be really interesting to see uh, what your views are. Now, I've seen quite a lot of theatre. Perhaps I'll start with a remarkable piece of theatre. Greg, you've seen a few one-person plays, haven't you, in your time? Um, probably a couple of them, but not okay. many. Not many, Okay. I increasingly I'm I'm seeing these and we're talking about very, very sort of long and tortured pieces often. Uh, and and learning the lines and playing the way that they do is just remarkable. It, it's it's like uh, running a couple of marathons is probably the best way I can well, back to back is the way I, I I'd probably put it. Uh, there's there's something that's just started, Melbourne Theatre Company's latest 
MTC Girls and Boys at Fairfax Studio Arts Centre, Melbourne. And what you have is this sharp and witty British woman unpicking her life before our eyes. What a life it's been. Included the highest of highs, the lowest of lows. She explains how she met her one true love, her husband, in a queue at an Italian airport and what came before him. Not all of it to be proud of. She speaks of her, of his rather, successful career, how it started, and of finding her own life's calling. Then it was she juggled her job with the couple's children, the elder a daughter and the other a son. As with all kids, they could be quite a handful. And then things changed irrevocably. If all of that sounds mundane, I assure you the play is anything but. Although, if I gave you any more detail, I'd be revealing too much. Suffice to say that Girls and Boys is bold and ferocious and funny and eye-opening. Brilliantly written by Dennis Kelly. He also wrote the book for Matilda the Musical. Did you see that, Greg, or not? No. Okay, that, that was brilliant, absolutely brilliant. That won him a Tony Award. I'm like you, Alice. I probably see about one or two plays a year at the moment because they're quite expensive. They are, no question about that. But having said that, it's interesting because we, we um, Nadine, my wife, and I paid for a play uh, at MC Showroom during the week and it was $40 each. So it depends on the play you go along and see. Obviously, if you go to the, the big musicals, et cetera, uh, it's quite quite easy, easily spent 150 bucks to see uh, a, a sort of a musical of that that nature. Anyway. Well, the mid-range seats for Hamilton are $200. There you go, yeah. And, again, it's amazing to me how buoyant the theatre scene is. It's delightful. I'm, I'm rapt that so many people are going and, and obviously picking and choosing what they're going to, but uh, a lot of these, especially the big ones, are doing very, very nicely. Anyway. Girls and Boys, brilliantly written by Dennis Kelly, skillfully performed by Nikki Shields. In fact, it's a tour de force showing by her. Her delivery style is particularly engaging. She's on stage by herself for all 110 minutes without interval in what is a most demanding, emotionally draining role. The storyline doesn't follow a linear narrative. She switches between various time frames in her character's journey. One minute she's relaying her soon-to-be husband's ex, sorry, soon-to-be husband's interaction with two models, and the next she's getting down and dirty and explaining details of her own overindulgence. Of course, the children more than once test her patience. We see that play out, while she and her hubby have a wonderful meeting of minds, until they don't. Shields shifts the mood time and again without missing a beat always eloquent in imparting the perspective of the female protagonist. She's detailed, descriptive, emotive. At times, she's vulgar. Minimalist stage setting, all is reliant upon her superior acting acumen, which she consistently brings to the fore. On occasions, she videotapes herself interacting with others. That dialogue is projected onto a blank wall. What starts out as extremely amusing monologue becomes mild, mighty powerful and deeply affecting. The director, Kate Champion, ensures the pacing keeps the action moving and is ever-changing. It's a very special production, this one. Really, I, I, I actually commended it to Jackie off-air as well. 
And it, it's richly compelling theatre. It really is. It's again, it's been a really strong season by MTC. I'm delighted to say that, you know, with with COVID, if you like, um, uh, protocols behind us, uh, a lot of people are really enjoying what they're seeing. And I, I, I have every reason to commend MTC for what they've done this season. We're going to see the Yvonne Gerlugong Cawley story as being the, the final act, shall we say, in the 2022 season. And of course, the 23 season is up there on as, online as well. So if you want to check that out, go to mtc.com.au. Anyway, Girls and Boys is playing at Fairfax Studio Arts Centre Melbourne. That's the intimate theatre, and it's the perfect setting for it as well. You're very, very close to the action in any seat that you have there, and this is that sort of play that you you want the uh, uh, sort of interaction with the, the one-on-one interaction with the, the star of the show, Nikki Shields. As I say, loved her performance, thought it was brilliantly produced, brilliantly written, and skillfully directed it's on until the 26th of november so please go along and see girls and boys i can't imagine that anybody would be disappointed in this because it is so darn good and i i remember i I praised cyrano for being the the play of the season well i tell you what this is giving it a run for its money and and that's isn't that great to be able to say that that that's that's the sort of uh show that you want to go along to now greg a number of years ago did you, MTC, because I know you subscribe or did subscribe apart from this season. Yeah, it's just right. I got COVID, shut everything down, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever see Urine Town at, uh, at MTC? They, they, I checked back. Urine Town was out in 2004. So that was at the Playhouse at the, the Art Centre. And it uh, it's it's interesting looking back. Shane Bourne, Rhonda Birchmore, Lisa McCune, Jenny... Jerry McConley, Colette Mann. I mean, what a, what an amazing cast, eh? Looking back, it's, yeah. it's, uh, this is, bear in mind this is a winner of Tony Awards for best original score and best book of a musical. Are you familiar with it or not? The 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 script or not? For, for oh, I don't remember seeing that one. You don't remember seeing it, but but no. it, okay. Well, let let me tell you a little bit about it. And I mean, I I'm just again cognizant that we. We want to get people along to the theatre as well as to movies. 20-year-old drought, which led to blatant exploitation of the underprivileged. That's the basis of what, what is a satirical musical comedy. The narrator who sets the scene is also the town's crooked cop, and he's joined by a street urchin called Little Sally. Terrible water shortage has meant that it costs money to pee. Now, have you been to and Peter? You've been to Europe as well. When you first went to Europe, did it surprise you that you had to pay to pee? It depends on which country you're in. Yes. <laughs> but but it was interesting in Germany at the Munich uh, uh, train station. You have to pay, but then you also pay for having a shower as well. So it's it was very well organised. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean th- that's what this is all about. So in, okay, you you've got this terrible water shortage means that you have to pay to pee. And free public toilets are out of the question, no matter how desperate the need. And the oppressed in the musical, uh, Urinetown, the musical, assemble outside public amenity number nine. The harsh authority there is Penelope Pennywise, who has a handsome young assistant called Bobby Strong. And even Strong's desperate father, Joseph, can't use the facilities without coughing up. Failure to do so results in being carted away to a place called Urinetown, from which there's no return. 
the overlord pulling the strings, angling for even more money, there's going to be a fee increase, is the head of Urine Good Company. Yes, indeed. I, I, I like the name. Urine Good Company, Caldwell B. Cladwell. And he's a tyrant. He's very proud of the fact that he's a tyrant. He welcomes home from university his daughter, Hope, who he engages as the new facts and copy girl. Mm. Her head is turned by Bobby Strong, that's the handsome young assistant at public amenity number nine, who recognises that he needs to stand up for what is only fair and decent. And so there's revolution in the air. So this is fun, it's fanciful, it's frivolous. Beneath it, though, there is an important message about climate change. The talented 16-strong cast, they have a wow of a time with the material. It's filled with jokes and one-liners. And as the saying goes, timing's everything, which the performers nail. Of the many that stand out, a couple that I'd like to mention, Dom Hetnequin is superb as the narrator and Officer Lockstock. There are two officers here. There's Officer Lockstock and, Greg, what's the other one? Lockstock and? The smoking barrels? Yes, barrel. That's it. The smoking isn't there, but there's Officer Lockstock and Barrel. So um, that this guy's got really great stage presence and a strong singing voice. Finn Alexander really starts to assert himself when the tide turns against the corporation pulling the strings. He's the handsome young dude. And his piece to the resistance comes when he literally conducts an orchestra of the disenfranchised in Act Two. Then there's the fire in the belly of a young lady called Amy McMillan. She's the young lady who can't, can't stand idly by and let the downtrodden be walked over. Then Madison Coleman draws on her impressive set of pipes to full effect. She is the lady in charge of the, the uh, facility number nine, shall we say. She's very, very strong there. I mean, there's a really good lot of talent here, and I, I really appreciated that uh, that was all there. So uh, you've got the dry humour from Chloe Haley. She's a real asset as Little Sally. And Ashley Noble brings comic sensibilities to the love-struck Officer Barrel. So some very good talent. Love the up-tempo, crowd-pleasing music. The choreography is a real winner. My only criticism concerns projections which were barely discernible. I, I couldn't read some of them, right, against a clear plastic backdrop at the outset. And then a little bit further on, there was only a single projection against the back wall. Again, I couldn't read it. I mean, that surely that's an easy fix. Anyway, it's bright, it's breezy, it's a spoof urine town. It, given our energy crisis and focus on natural resources, it, it resonates even more strongly today than when it was conceived. And I think that's a good thing. It was, I think it was out in 2001. So it's been, you know, 20 years on and, you know, we're, we're still making hay while the sun shines, or in this case, making, making um, yes, m making other stuff. But anyway, it's playing at Chapel Off Chapel right now, it's a really good production. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think people are going to love it. And um, it's called Urine Town, the musical. The music and lyrics are by Mark Holman. The book and lyrics are by Greg Coters. So really worth seeing. Check it out. You've got another week to see it. And uh, go on to the Chapel Off Chapel website and book your tickets to Urine Town, the musical. Gentlemen, we have reached the end of the show, I'm afraid, so we're going to have to do it all again next week. And I invite you to join me, Greg King. Thank you very much for being part of the show. Not a, not a problem, Alex. Enjoy um, Cup Day. And you too. And, and Peter Krause, 
Uh, you're not going to back, back a nag, are you? But, no, but I uh, back the film Karaoke, which is playing at the Jewish Film Festival. Ah, very good. Good man. We will speak next week. And, folks, be good to one another. We'll catch you on First on Film and Entertainment next time around. <laughs>